Well, good morning and welcome to all of you on this special day where we celebrate the Kirkin of the Tartans. I got my Calhoun tie on. Once again, I have avoided wearing a kilt. I just asked Chuck to wear one on my behalf. So thanks for taking one for the team, Chuck, in that. Hey, um, we really need to have a conversation about how our society is drifting from sanity. I mean, we just, we are in a place right now where we complain about everything. And there's no greater evidence of this than an article that someone on staff shared with me about our national parks. I mean, should there be anything about our national parks that we should do but just treasure what the gift of they are? And yet people, even when they go and they see these national parks, that they just go and they complain. So they have taken, the national parks have taken actual complaints that people have lodged against the national parks and they've turned them into posters. Let me share with you some of those. For the Grand Canyon, someone referred to it as a hole, a very, very large hole. Or perhaps this one, you might have been to Yellowstone National Park, save yourself some money and boil some water at home. Instead of seeing the beautiful pools and geysers of the wonder of God's majesty, or this from Yosemite National Park, the trees block the view and there are too many gray rocks. This is El Capitan. This is like some of the beautiful scenery of our country. There's another one here. This is Sequoia National Park. There are bugs and they will bite you on your face. One of my personal favorites. Don't even have to say anything about this one. Just let that joke kind of catch up with you if you've ever seen an Arizona license plate. And finally, the only thing to do here is walk around the desert for Joshua Tree. You know, when you get pushed beyond your comfort zone, when you get pushed to the margins of your life, when you get pushed to the edges where, where things are not as you usually are, that is where you find out who you really are and what you're really made of. And one of the things that we are being experiencing as a society right now, collectively and individuals, is that we are being tested. We are being tried. We are being tempted. And like the Israelites long ago, when they went through those periods of trial and they were really summarized by their complaints more by their faith, that is happening true with us as well. And so I want us to experience today what it'll be to go back to the wilderness, but to do so with Jesus, and maybe we will be found faithful where Israel and where our country is wanting. And so if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Hopefully you've brought maybe your scripture journal with you. If you have, bring out your journal. We'd love for you to bring this week in and week out. Take notes. If you don't have one, we've got them located at all the different exits. Chapter, chapter, we are walking through the book of Matthew over the course of 28 weeks, every single chapter, for us to experience the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me share with you a little bit about what Matthew is doing. As the most Jewish of our gospel writers, he is overlaying the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, over the first parts of the book of Matthew. So in trying to answer the question, who is this Jesus and what has he come to do, we see that, we see that Matthew is being very intentional of drawing from the tradition to be able to art articulate who this Jesus is. And so we saw in Genesis, 
We saw that we saw that there was Genesis, Genesis, Genesis all over that first chapter with the genealogy and the birth of Christ. And then how he returned to Egypt in the Exodus in Matthew chapter 2. And then we saw last week in the baptism, we saw that that was a recasting of holiness. And this week, the book of Numbers is primarily about that wilderness in-between period. And that's what we see Jesus going through in Matthew chapter 4. We're discovering that it was easier to get the people out of Egypt than it was to get the Egypt out of them. And then we're about to see some precursors of the book of Deuteronomy in this chapter and then that will be explained over the course of one of the greatest speeches and the finest sermons ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're seeing how God is making all things new. That's kind of the theme of the gospel and it is certainly the theme of Matthew. That in the first chapter we see that we're given a new history. In the second chapter we're given a new family. In the third chapter we're given a new identity. And today we are given a new vocation a new sense of our calling. And we're going to experience that first and foremost in and through Jesus and also for ourselves. But before we dive into this text, you need to understand that wilderness periods of time, that that all the major figures of the Old Testament spent time in the wilderness. Moses spent time in the wilderness. Elijah spent time in the wilderness. And now Jesus is going to spend time in the wilderness. And in those moments of testing... It is not just about your character, it is also about what you feel called to do. And so I love how Eugene Peterson summarizes what happens in the temptation stories of Jesus by saying this. He says, it was in the desert where Jesus prepared to be our savior and not merely our helper, our advisor, or our entertainer. Jesus is the Messiah. What does he mean by being the Messiah? we are about to find out. Now, this sermon's gonna be a little different in the sense of I've invited the music ministry to provide some musical interludes. Sometimes we move from point to point to point so quickly as we go through something like this, which is a natural three-point message with three different temptations. And we go so quickly that we don't have time to let it absorb. And so I've asked the choir to help to provide some space for us to reflect and meditate a little bit in between each of the different temptations. The first of the wilderness temptations is this. Jesus is invited to turn stones into bread, which means that this is a temptation of desire. Matthew chapter 4, starting in the first verse. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds or comes from the mouth of God. And so in this first temptation, Jesus is hungry. He is in his moment of greatest weakness or vulnerability. After a long period of time of fasting, of not eating, Jesus is famished. And the way that the devil or the tempter or the accuser, the adversary comes to him, comes to him with the preamble and does this in the other ones as well. If you are the son of God, 
trying to plant that little seed of doubt, if this is who you really say that you are, if this is your identity, because remember, remember, hearken back to what's happened just before this chapter in chapter 3 when it's been the baptism, that the heavens open, that the Spirit descend, and a voice was pronounced over Jesus, this is my beloved Son. And so what we see is Jesus is claiming his rightful vocation as the Son of God. But the question is, what is he going to do with that? What's it going to look like? Well, the first temptation that he has is that he's hungry, and he has the power, he has the authority. For the one who created the universe and spun the stars into their galaxies, how hard it would it be to turn a little bit of bread, a stone into bread, so that he might be filled And yet Jesus doesn't do it. I want to show you the image of a really funny looking creature that comes from the southwest. This is known as the Havelina pig. And there was a family that were going out to do some hiking. And they had their car in an area where these pigs are known to be. And as they were there, they left an unop- or they left an opened bag of Cheetos in the back of their car. Well, the Havilino pig figured out a way to get into the car and got into the car. Here's an image of the pig in the car. <laughs> Ate all of the Cheetos, somehow pushed a button that caused the door to close, got trapped in the car, ravaged the inside of the car to such a degree that somehow kicked the car into neutral so that the car was actually in a different place when the family came back to try to find their car. So I love the contrast of this next image here of Cheetos and the Havilena pig, to which we learn the great spiritual lesson that man does not live by Cheeto alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, the point of the first temptation, this temptation of desire, is that your desires are given by God. Most of our desires are good. They just have to be channeled in the right way. Sometimes our desires are not too weak or too strong. They're too too weak. And yet, what you need to understand is that you are more than what you long for. And that all of us become eventually what we desire and what we long for and what we love and what we worship. Our society tries to teach us today that if you have a desire, you're supposed to immediately gratify it. But that's not the way of the gospel. That yes, we have desires. To eat is a good thing. But we also need to recognize that we're not just to feast upon physical food but upon the word of God. And so Jesus responds to the devil's temptation with the quote that we all need to know by heart, and I'm encouraging you to say it in unison after I teach it to you. We shall not live by bread alone. We shall not live by bread alone.
Is Jesus going to be the kind of Messiah where he came to meet his own needs? Or is Jesus going to be the kind of Messiah where he trusts that God will meet his needs? The first of the wilderness temptations is one of desire. The second temptation is that of control. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4, starting in the fifth verse. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here we have Jesus transported to the sacred and most important place in that part of the world. The place where heaven and earth are said to overlap and interlock with one another. And standing at the top of that temple, the accuser says to him, you know what, you could throw yourself down from here and the angels would protect you. Where does that come from? Or you see, when Jesus responds in the first temptation, he responds and arms himself against temptation, as we all should, with the timeless truths of the word of God. And so he draws off of the book of Deuteronomy, which is where all of Jesus' quotes come from in this particular portion of the text. And so he's drawing from God's word in order to be able to react and to push back against the temptations of the devil. And so if the first temptation was about Jesus in his greatest moment of weakness in the sense of the fact that he was human, that he was hungry, the the second temptation is trying to come at Jesus from his point of strength, from his faith, from his scripture, from his knowledge. For you see, the way that the devil comes at this second temptation is that even the devil here is quoting Scripture. He's quoting Psalm 91. Jesus, if you're who you say you are, if you truly are this Son of God, you know what it says in Psalm 91, Jesus? It says, you're not going to get hurt. You could throw yourself off the top of this temple and the angels would collect you and protect you. You wouldn't even stub a toe. When we were going through the early portions of the pandemic and there was a great deal of confusion, there were several Christians who approached me, talked to me, emailed me about Psalm 91 saying that they had nothing to worry about with regards to this pandemic because God would protect them because of the promises of Psalm 91, that they would not, because of their faith, get the coronavirus. And I would need to take them to another part of the Bible here, Matthew chapter 4, to say that yes, this is what Psalm 91 might say, but just because it's what it says doesn't mean it's being applied correctly and understood. Have you ever known someone who could quote scripture and yet their life wasn't a reflection of what that scripture they were reciting? And so here in this moment, the devil is saying, well, If I can't make you carnal, can I make you fanatical? In other words, this is a a different kind of trial for Jesus because 
the devil is quoting Scripture to entice him, and Jesus is having to respond with the right use of Scripture, the correction, because what Jesus is saying here is that there's a big difference between trusting God and testing God. And that difference is the difference of control. Let me see if I can illustrate it. I want to put something on the screen that you are probably all familiar with. That starting in 2021, the sensation that swept through the world, a little puzzle that was once made as kind of a gift for a couple of people to stay in contact with one another, all of a sudden got sold to a whole, for a whole lot of money to the New York Times. Now, while I was doing research for this illustration, you need to understand that I ran across some statistics and they troubled me. The statistics that troubled me were this. Here are the top 10 states at playing Wordle by their average score. And it didn't bother me that we would lose in the state of Georgia to some of these states, but it is not okay, my friends, that we are behind the state of Alabama when it comes (laughs) to Wordle. And so part of the point of this message is to challenge you to step up to your game Because when I look at these stats in the future, I want to see that we started a movement here at Peachtree that we were doing better than some of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the state line. Now, the reason I actually bring up Wordle is is that there's something interesting about puzzles that I want to call our attention to that's referenced to this temptation. Let me ease into it this way. You need to know that my wife is often very kind of curious as to why it doesn't bother me to do laundry and to do the dishes at home. And I keep having to remind her that in pastoral ministry, nothing is ever done. That at least when you finish the dishes, you finish the dishes. And at least when you finish the laundry, you finish the laundry. When I'm doing pastoral work, it's never complete. The sermon can always be a little better, like this one probably should be. Pastoral care, there's always another appointment that I could have. There's always another person I could call. There's always another person I could visit. There's always another note I could make, right? There's, there's so much, and you, I mean, you're never going to be complete with it. And there's something beautiful about being able to complete the task. But there's also something a little sinister with it. To quote the prophet, who's the editor of the New York Times crossword puzzle, He says this, we're faced with problems every day in life and we almost never get clarity. We jump into the middle of a problem, we carry it through to whatever extent we can to find an answer and then we just find the next thing. But with a human-made puzzle, you have the satisfaction of being completely in control. And you start the challenge from beginning and you move all the way to the end. That's a satisfaction you don't get much in real life. You feel in control, and that's a great feeling. My friends, the difference between trusting God and testing God is the level of control that you feel like you have to have. It's a form of manipulation. And just as you and I are tempted to just always respond to our desires, one of the things that we're always tempted to 
is to seize control, to make sure we're in charge. And so we need to be able to respond with the scripture that Jesus responded with. And we will say, and I'll teach you to say this in unison, we will not put the Lord our God to the test. We will not put the Lord our God to the test. first of the wilderness temptations is a temptation of desire. The second of the temptations is one of control. The third of the temptations is one of glory. Starting in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. In this, the third of the trials and the temptations, Jesus is shown all the kingdoms, the earthly realms, All of this can be yours, Jesus. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go through all of this trouble. You don't have to go through this pain. You don't have to go through this rejection. If you will bow down and worship me, the accuser says. I'll give this to you right now. I want to show you a village in the middle of Italy. It's a beautiful medieval area that's kind of characteristic of the majestic hills and the architecture of that region. Back in the time of the beginning of the 13th century, there was a wealthy family that lived in this village that had a 21-year-old son by the name of John. John was pretty much someone who was the life of the party. His father was a wealthy cloth merchant, and 
His friends would often, as they would go out to celebrate, they would bring a scepter and let John hold the scepter because they were calling him the prince of the party because he was the one who was going to pick up the tab. And so they would take him out and they would go out and he was quite full of himself and of what he was able to do. And particularly his head was filled with the predominant images of the time of the glory of the knights. Even though he wasn't a knight and had not done any of the training of a knight or the rigor of the discipline of the knight, because he was so wealthy, his, his father bought him a knight's outfit. And so he would even often wander around in the garb of a knight just because of the fighting spirit that it gave him and the fact that he loved all of the ideals and the legends of, of the glory of the battle. One day his town came under attack and his town was defeated and he was taken into chains and thrown into prison. And so here was this well-to-do, shallow, fake knight who was now in bondage with nowhere to go. Eventually, his father was able to, through a series of bribes, get him released. And he was released, and because the family had connections, they were able to reestablish their position and their trade and their wealth in that area, even though they had been conquered. But something in that prison time started to change that man by the name of John. There was something that stirred within him that there had to be more, more to this life. And he received a revelation from God that he was called to restore the church, which he began to do. He began to give his family's wealth away to be able to help to care and to restore the church. His father didn't like this. In fact, his father tried to have him arrested for spending the family's money in this way. And eventually, in a very dramatic moment, this man stripped himself naked, thinking of his parents being in the cloth business, think of this, folded up the only possessions that he had, put them together, and brought them back to his father. He walked into the town square naked to confront his father and to give the last of his worldly possessions and said to him, I must obey the command of God. I must follow that calling. And that is exactly what he did. You see, his given name was John, but because his family loved to travel so much to France, they almost never called him John. They referred to him by the name of Francis. And he began a movement in the middle of the 13th century to remind us of obedience in the face of corruption and violence, and that the glory he dreamed of when he was a child was not the true glory of the kingdom of God. What is the glory that you seek? And how will you seek it? 
It was only then that after Jesus was successful in going through these three tests that he had the credibility to go to people who were in their own merchant classes and to say, hey, follow me. And we too, in our own ways, must be willing to go through these challenges today if we want to be able to invite people to follow the the risen and reigning Christ into the life of discipleship. And so here are the three tests. A test of desire, because you are more than what you long for. A test of control, because you are more than being able to manipulate the situation or even try to manipulate God. We have to learn to trust. And a temptation of glory. Are we willing to live for the generosity of God's kingdom? Or is it all about our own glory? When you go through periods of wilderness times, challenges, scarcity, limitations, you have a choice. You can be like the typical American or you can be like the typical Israelite in the desert. We can complain and we can lose our faith or we can follow in the way of Jesus. And where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus will thrive. That God will supply their needs and he will supply ours. That even though we cannot be in control of our lives, we are not to test God, we are to trust God. And that finally, it is not our glory that we seek, but His. And so, as you go through your periods of wilderness, may you be armed with God's Word, and may you worship Him and Him only. As we join our hearts together in prayer, let us pray. Our good and gracious Father, we are reminded how much we need you in those wilderness moments. And that you have forged our vocation. That you have called us to not only a particular identity, but a particular way of living. And so help us to recognize that our desires do not control us and that we are to live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Forgive us for trying to control our lives and our outcomes, and even to the point where we're willing to test you. Give us the gift of trust. And Father, renew our our sense of glory. Help us to empty ourselves so that you may fill us. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? May we hear once again the call to follow you, just as you approached those disciples in this chapter centuries ago. May we now pick up that mantle of knowing that you truly are the Son of God, and that even in the wilderness, you will be faithful. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.